It's Sunday, probably, so that must mean it's time for the Bookworm on Fab Radio International uh, and in association with Starburst Magazine. I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and I'm here with... Nymphaise! So, what have you got on the show today? Lots of stuff. We have got lots of stuff. All the stuff. Well, to start, we'll have um, the usual segment on news. Loads of news. Loads of news. I'm going to be talking about some kind of fairy tale by Graham Joyce, who sadly passed away just this week. We'll talk mm. about that in the news section. You'll be reviewing... I'm going to be reviewing a graphic novel series called Rising Stars by J. Michael Straczynski. And we'll be interviewing a, a popular science uh, science fiction and fantasy author called George Orwell Martin. Now, nobody knows him. Nobody will have heard of him. <laughs> so listen to the entire show because we've got some fantastic stuff. Uh, and coming up next, the book news. show by the way the reason we use the doctor who tune is because it sounds a bit newsy sounds it sounds a bit bbc newsy um if you are new to this show and you haven't got to us via say our tumblr page we are on twitter we are on facebook and we are on tumblr we are on mix canada and we are itunes as radio bookworm we can be found by the starburst magazine website as well um like subscribe ask for bricks at us send us owls ravens telepathic messages whatever we like to speak speak to you and occasionally we even read your stuff out on the show yeah so let's talk about the news Alan Moore has completed his second book. Yeah, I hear it's a short story. Yeah, it's, it's a short story <laughs> of a million words uh, called Jerusalem. Um, uh, it, oh my good, giddy aunt. Uh, Knockabout are doing the printing. Um, and Knockabout are, I mean, they're a small press publisher. Mm-hmm. And you'd expect, you know, Random Penguin maybe or Gollant to, yeah. to be responsible for this. But no, Alan being Alan, and I suppose he, he's got a good reason more than anyone else to distrust major publishers. But he's he's gone for knockabout, and it's a million word novel. I'm I'm concerned about the binding. He has he has described it as cripplingly heavy <laughs> in the past as well. Um, and he's you know his last novel, Voice, of the, Voice. Have you read Voice of the Fire? I haven't. No. Um, it's shall we say? Shall we say it's quite hard work. I mean, it's good. It is very good. I, I, I was very critical of it at the time, but it's very good. Jerusalem, I suspect, either going to be Finnegan's Wake for the new generation, or it's going to be brilliant. But it's a million words. Mr. Moore, I review books for a living, and I know that I'm not your audience, but... Oh, my giddy aunt, you have not made my life easy. I'm so looking forward to this. I, the, the game... <laughs> The game I will be playing was I'll be looking at things like Guardian reviews, trying to work out who has actually read it. Yeah. Because instead be- of just read the back blurb, I bet you there won't be any advanced previews. I bet mm. it'll just come out. 
Can you imagine them sending out arcs and things like that? It, it's just not going to happen. I mean, the postage only is going to break them. The postman, our postman is about to riot anyway. The, the bookworm has a postman, obviously, and he has this weary glare in his eye when he comes to our door. <laughs> um, because we have we have so many, so many books that come through our door to begin with. A million word novel, just to give you a rough idea, that's what, two worn pieces? Um, that's one third of the Wheel of Time. Mm-hmm. So, so if you, just, <laughs> just apparently and um, just under twice the length of War and Peace. <laughs> so basically we should nominate this for Hugo. I, 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 yeah, producer Al's the pack. right? Yeah. You, you're a genius, actually. Yeah. Um, I'd love to see Alan Moore at the Hugos. <laughs> uh, he, would, he, would, he would be so in his, his own element and also so out of place. <laughs> um, there, there is other stuff. Um, fantasy writer Graham Joyce has died uh, at the age of 59. Uh, he's a very well-known fantasy author. He's run, won the British Fantasy Award something like five times now. Um Died in the hospital in Leicester, uh, North London, uh, Tuesday afternoon, um, just last week, uh, after a fight with cancer. Um, very sad news. Very, very sad news. Um, everyone who is, you know, a major author has gone out and gone and, and, and shit in their fist at the sky. Um, so, so sad. Um yeah, our sympathies and, and love go to the family and friends, of course. And, and I'll be reviewing some kind of fairy tale because I've been wanting to for a while and I can't think of any more in an appropriate moment. Uh, in slightly more cheerful news, Children's Market, 10% up. Yay! So that means that kids are reading books, or at least kids are being bought books. Um, or, you know, grown-ups are picking up children's books and reading them. Talking about kids, <laughs> Read On, Get On, a campaign vows to tackle dyslexia. Save the Children have launched a campaign called Read On, Get In, Get On. It's a coalition of various charities and various groups. Um, it's various groups that are interested in tackling UK poverty and, and, and the like have um, launched a campaign to, to tackle the, the apparently the reading crisis, which I think is a slightly dramatic way of describing it. But essentially, they are tackling anyone who can help people get into books is is a hero as far as we're concerned um dyslexia is something that is we we now understand we can now do stuff about and we can bring more people into the world of reading which is just absolutely fantastic see as a personal experience i remember going for a a job interview once and there was a a lovely guy there that was interviewing for the same position and we were talking about books and he was telling me how his son was dyslexic and he got him into reading by um, basically buying the Harry Potter books and started reading them in front of him and then started sort of hinting at things that were happening to encourage him, <laughs> at which point the kid decided to actually pick the book up and he said it, the transformation in, in the easiness in which he approached books after Harry Potter because of those of that series was amazing and apparently it is true, Harry Potter helps with dyslexia. All, all sorts of things do. Everything from rose-tinted, literally rose-tinted uh, spectacles mm-hmm. to, to all sorts of different bit, bits and pieces. There's all sorts of things we can do now now that we understand more about what it is. Absolutely. Um, so so that's good, and that's happening. Um, also, reading is up, as you've probably gathered. Uh, thanks to the internet, everyone reads all the time. Everyone sends texts all the time. Communication is up. Book sales are generally, generally up. Um, World Book Day, uh, talking about encouraging people to read. World Book, Book Day, or our old friend Chris Riddell, is on the list of uh, people that will get to have on World Book Day. This is fantastic. Um, 
And also the British Fantasy Awards happened. Um, the Shining Girls won Best Horror Novel because, yeah, of course they did. Uh, Sarah <laughs> Pindra won um, Beauty for, for Beauty for Best Novella. I've just finished um, um, Poison. Oh, isn't it? Isn't it's it? It's so cool. It's 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 smut, but I love it. Yeah, um, but it's it is and it isn't though. The, there's a it, the lot of layers. I did not. Well, I did expect it, but but kind of didn't when it happened. So very good book. Yeah. Congratulations to everyone who won, especially Alchemy Press, uh, especially Be- Becky Cloonan for Demeter, and of course Joey Hi-Fi, who's had a very good year this year, has won again for Best Artist. Mm-hmm. And also just just as a tie-in with with today's guest, uh, Best Film Television Episode. Game of Thrones, the reign of Castamere. Again. Again. That is that is winning a lot. Yes. <laughs> to be fair, considering the reaction of pretty much the whole of the public that yeah, watched it, yeah. including people who knew what was going to happen. I'm yeah, I, I, I have not read those books, um, but, but I kind of sensed fairly early on in that episode that this was not going to go well. <laughs> it's the Starks. <laughs> we should know what happens by now. <clears throat> and not a, not a whiff, not a whiff for Doctor Who again. No uh, well. Right, welcome to the bookworm. And we're going to talk about Some Kind of Fairy Tale by Graham Joyce. You can get it via Ryan Books. It's in hardcover, it's in ebook. It's also in softback, I believe, by now. So, uh, what's it about? Well, it's a modern-day story um, with fairies in it. I wouldn't call it urban fantasy in the slightest. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it fantasy fantasy? It's fantasy fantasy. It just happens to be set in the modern day. Um, So it's Christmas afternoon, and Peter Martin gets an unexpected phone call from his parents. Bewilderingly, his sister Tara has come back home. Not Not so unusual, you might think, but she's been missing for 20 years when she went for a walk in the woods and never came back as far as they're concerned. Also, she hasn't aged for 20 years. And she won't tell them where she's been. Fairies! Fairies! Fairies took her! Oh my god! It is very much a kind of very, very modern take on what happens when someone literally runs away from the fairies. Tara, who is the the girl who comes back, Mm -hmm. um, is described as a kind of 1960s, 70s free spirit hippie type girl, mm. very pretty, very charismatic, flowers in her hair, this sort of thing. Um, and it gets, you know, it gets even more involved because she went missing. And obviously her boyfriend at the time was blamed. Ooh. Um, and the boyfriend at the time was best friends with Pete, and this is very much Pete's story. Okay. Um, and it's all, you know, it all comes flooding back, and yeah. she won't tell them what's happened. And clearly she's running away from something, or clearly she wants to move on from, from something. something. One of the interesting things is that Peter is also, and in, it is masterfully done, but Peter has also retired from his, his big city job, moved to the con- moved back to the country. Mm. He's now a blacksmith. Oh, so... Yeah. He, he works with iron. And, of course and, he does. Um, Best place to hide from fairies ever. Uh, and his sister returns, and she looks young, but there's something about her that says she's old, mm. and she's strange, and she tells story about the travels and the places she's been, but there's something quite wrong. And obviously, Peter's children are completely enchanted of by her, and they think she's she's wonderful. And then, of course, the the boyfriend, the 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 former boyfriend who who 
used to travel around with his guitar and used to be, you know, a proper creative and, and you know, a dreamer, proper mm. dreamer, um, turns up and he's confused, angry. You know, he spent that time in the jail cell. He had his, you know, he was beaten up because they couldn't prove it. But God, they knew knew it was him, so they, they tried did. to hurt him as much as they can because it was the seventies. It's very, very English. Some kind of fairy tale has got a very British feel to it. If you, you know, if you are a British middle class person and you were raised in the seventies or eighties, you will recognise this kind of kind of environment it's very village but the thing is graham joyce who is a master storyteller paints such a middle class world that i think if you're from painting ohio or wherever you are if you've never seen an english country village before you'll you'll be able to recognize one instantly after reading some kind of fairy tale it's beautifully done it's incredibly haunting the with, there's, there's no spoilers when I say that the fairies are in fact involved. The way that is handled, it's handled in such a mundane yet fantastic way that I have I've read I've read this twice now. I've fallen in love every single time. Um, it's it's just fantastic. Um, I would argue one of the one of the things that Graham Joyce has done is you sit there and you go, well, this is such an obvious idea, and yet I've never seen it quite done that way. He brings together the British tradition of village horror, he brings together the, the the European tradition of fairies, and then he adds his own weird mix. If you love the likes of Clive Barker and that sort of thing, or if you like Adam Roberts, um, I would argue that those are his contemporaries here. This is not particularly a horror story, it's a fantasy story, but there is a, there is a pervading strangeness that is addictive, and I think you'll find it very hard to find something to match it. It is my favourite Graham Joyce novel, and I'm very, very sad that he's not with us anymore. Mm. Uh, that yeah, it sounds uh, it sounds so good. So so, uh, you, you mentioned horror. So I'm guessing these aren't Tinkerbell fairies. These are the I will take you away in the night, and you know we, we are not nice and pretty. Well, we are pretty, but we're definitely not nice. They are a weird merging of real world expectations fantasy expectations mm. so there is a mix of there is more than a touch of the tinker to them okay. and there's more of a touch of it's it's kind of they're not quite what you expect them to be but on the other hand they are when you stop and think about it you go actually that's more terrifying mm-hmm. that whole and they could just be us okay. they could yeah. just be just behind you they could be behind you in the queue at the shops mm. for a moment I and like then that and then suddenly, you know, you're in the shops, there's kids playing, there's a slightly strange man behind you, and then suddenly the kids are gone. It's that sort of... Oh, God, that that is fairly terrifying. That's the sort of, you know, it's that subtle, pervading horror that fairies are meant to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think long-time listeners of the show and long-time fans of genre fiction will be well aware that fairies are not the friendly things no. painted in the Victorian myth. <laughs> no... Yeah. So it always amused me because I remember back when I first watched Labyrinth, when she she goes, you know, to to, to enter the labyrinth, and she gets enchanted by that beautiful little fairy flying away, and then it bits her, and she's like, she bit me. It's cool. And, and then like, well, yeah, the fairies. What do you expect them to do? Grant wishes? I love it. Uh, it's totally off the topic, but I love the single line in there, Sarah. Of course you are. Yeah. And the idea and the implication, this is a, a fan theory rather than a, a thing that's actually 
been confirmed by the frauds, but I think the frauds have nodded and gone, we like that, is yeah. the, the general idea that Jared is always looking for his server. He's been looking for his server for millennia, mm-hmm. and this game has been played again and again and again, and we're just seeing one example of what happens mm-hmm. when the goblins come for babies. But anyway, Labyrinth for One Side, some kind <laughs> of fairy tale by the great Graham Joyce. Um, it's on Orion Books. Pick it up if you like a nice, if you like being creeped out and you like that kind of little touch of 70s and that little touch of the middle class, then you should go for it. Uh, we've put a link to the specific page of Graham's website on our Twitter. Excellent. Fantastic. Tweet us, retweet us. And, um, Tweet us once more. I believe coming up next we have some even more stuff. Embrace the alternative with Fab Radio. Hello, everyone. So I I was at LonCon a little while ago. Uh, and I abandoned I band, abandoned the rest of the team, and I think you had a great amount of fun. And so did you, apparently. I did indeed. Uh, as you might have heard if you heard last week's show, I met Robin Hobb. Um, after meeting Robin Hobb, I then had to go and do a panel. I found myself at the opposite side of the convention at the Sunborn Yacht to meet George R. R. Martin. George R. R. Martin. Standing there, chatting away to a German equivalent of Melvin Bragg, basically. Mm-hmm. Chatting away with him in this strange queue. And then I was taken to, to his hotel room to have a conversation with the master. It was a very strange Did you experience. steal his can of coke or something, did you? Did you? I didn't, actually. Oh, um, oh but they... Could they, have made a fortune for the radio. Oh, they, um, <laughs> I had access to the minibar. <laughs> I needed the water. Nonsense to one side. Um, this is the Bookworms interview with George R. R. Martin. This is Fab Radio International. Welcome to Starburst's Bookworm podcast. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much for coming on the show, George R. R. Martin. Um, so um, let's let's start. Service magazine talked to you a few years ago, uh, just before the TV series started. What's changed? The TV series has conquered the world. That's uh, been a big change. I mean, it's uh, the the show is everywhere. The books are everywhere. Um, more than forty languages, and I don't know how many how many different countries the show is being aired in, but it's become a global phenomenon. So uh, you know, it's a change of degree rather than kind. I mean, the books were bestsellers beforehand, but now they're mega bestsellers, and and, uh, it's made a great change in my life because it's made me a celebrity, which is something about it which I have decidedly mixed feelings, Um, but nonetheless, there it is, comes with the territory, so I'm I'm doing my best to adjust to that. I mean, you're an author with an impressive back catalogue and a vast wealth of work, and now you're a celebrity for for one thing. How How does that feel? Oh, I, I laugh about it sometimes. It is amusing. All of the people who seem to think that uh, I never wrote anything before Game of Thrones or they're unaware of it. So, And, of course, I had more than 20 years of uh, novels and short stories and television scripts and all of that before I got into Game of Thrones. So it's, it's one of these cases where I've worked 40 years to become an overnight success. Everyone seems surprised that you kill your characters, but surely that's how you write a book. Um, how how do you respond to this reputation that you have as a kind of you know a killer of beloved characters? You know the truth is I've always killed my characters. I look back on my my history as a writer, and uh, um, 
even as a reader. And I began writing for uh, comic fanzines, little amateur superhero stories, because I was a comic fan when I started out in, in, in junior high school and in high school. I was writing for the old mimeograph comic fanzines of the 1960s. And I think about the third or fourth story I published was something about, uh, was called The Strange Saga of the White Raider. And uh, the White Raider was a superhero that I created. He was a superhero on skis. So he, you know, he skied into action in the cold north. And what was important about that story, as I look back on it, uh, something I wrote when I was, you know, I don't know, 13, 14 years old, is that the White Raider dies at the end of that story. So even at the age of 13 and 14, I was, uh, was killing characters. Um, in the Wildcard series, we eventually meet um, ta- uh, the Takeshi's royal family. Um, what elements from there have moved on to your more famous works? Well, you know, the Wildcard uh, mosaic novels were partially structured um, from the lessons, some of the lessons I'd learned in television um, about uh, act breaks and uh, how to weave many storylines together. Um, and of course, Wild Cards is not my work alone. I've been the editor of it since 1987 when we started, but I have a wonderful assistant editor in Melinda Snodgrass, and we have more than 40 writers who've contributed to Wild Cards. My job there um, was to kind of be the conductor of the orchestra and to get all these people playing the same song and to, to wield the various storylines and plots that they were doing through each other, um, which is a challenging job. When I began writing A Song of Ice and Fire... That was like four or five years after Wild Cards. And I remember thinking at the time, well, I'm going to structure this like a Wild Cards mosaic novel, but instead of seven writers, each one writing a different character, I'll write all the characters. So it's it's the structure of a Wild Card book, but with me doing all of the parts. So I'm in, in that sense, I'm a one-man band, while Wild Cards was a symphony orchestra. The, the other genre that's big at the moment and very popular is even fantasy. Um, is Armageddon Rag actually the start of the urban fantasy movement, or would you say that? No, I wouldn't say that. Urban fantasy, of course, there, there's we have to be careful about that term, because uh, there was a subgenre called urban fantasy back in the 80s. Uh, came primarily out of Minnesota, and that whole group up there called the Scribblies. Um, and they were writing you know, stories about elves and other occult creatures mostly living in Minneapolis and interacting with human beings. A lot of it was drawn from Celtic fantasy, but in modern urban settings, the Borderlands series was uh, an important part of urban fantasy. But that variety of urban fantasy died out, and then this new subgenre arose, which is also called urban fantasy, but I think is very different. It's more, you know, women dressed in leather with tramp stamps fighting werewolves and vampires who are living among us. Um... I, I don't think Armageddon Rag really has much to do with either of those urban those types of urban fantasy. Would you say Fever Dream? Well, Fever Dream is certainly a vampire novel, but I don't I wouldn't call that urban fantasy either. It's it's uh, historical horror. Once you finished writing the Game of Thrones series, oh, what's next? I don't just mean books. You know, there's there's a lot of things I could do. I mean, first of all, I have two gigantic books still left in the. Uh, main line Ice and Fire series, A Song of Ice and Fire. But that doesn't mean I'll be through at Westeros. I still have uh, the fake history book that I've been jokingly referring to as the Grimmarillion that is largely half-written with with material that it was originally prepared as sidebars uh, for the World of Ice and Fire, which comes out in October. 
And I want to finish that book. I mean, I have a lot of great material there, but I don't have enough for a book. I have to write probably an equal amount that I've had already in order to complete that book. Uh, I also have these two prequel characters, Dunkin' Egg. I've written three stories about them, but there's many more adventures that they have along the way, so I need to write another three or five or seven stories about them to complete the saga of Dunkin' Egg. Um, I do want to do more wildcard work, including maybe a wildcard novel of my own at some point. I want to write more about Haviland Tough. I want to write a sequel to Fever Dream. I want to go back and complete uh, my famous, infamous, unfinished fifth novel, Black and White and Red All Over, my my Jack the Ripper novel. So there's a million things that I uh, could do, and I have no idea whether I'll do any of them when I finish Ice and Fire. By the time I finish Ice and Fire, I may have a dozen new ideas, which will seem more enticing to me than these ideas that I've been carrying along for a long time. So I just hope I live to 110 and get an idea to get a chance to write all of these stories. What advice would you give to, say, someone who's 16 who's currently writing um, Tony Stark, Iron Man meets Ned Stark fan fiction and, you know, idolizes your work and wants to be a writer? What advice would you give to them? Well, the first advice I'd give them is stop writing fan fiction. At least fan fiction as is presently constituted. Um... You know, I wrote, as a, as a young comic book fan, I wrote fan fiction, as we called it in the 1960s. Like the story I just mentioned, The Strange Saga of the White Raider. But I wasn't borrowing anyone else's characters. I invented the White Raider and, and gave him his backstory and invented the world he was in, invented the people he was fighting. Um, I inv- fan fiction in those days was just fiction written by fans, published in fanzines. Now fan fiction seems to have taken on a very specific and narrower meaning of borrowing other people's characters and other people's worlds and writing unauthorized uh, fanish material about Iron Man, Tony Stark, or Ned Stark, or Harry Potter, or Star Trek, or Star Wars, or you name it. Um, to my mind, that's not good preparation for being a writer. I mean, you, you need to do it all to be a writer. You need to... You need to be able to create a world. You need to be able to create your own characters, not just borrow other people's characters. You know, you're, you're training yourself as a writer to, to uh, do all the tasks necessary to create great fiction. And, and just doing part of the tasks, not doing the world building, not doing the character creation, that's like trying to get in shape by exercising only your right hand. And yeah, I'll do a lot of I'll do a lot of writing. I'll I'll really get in good shape here, but I'll never do anything with my left hand. Um, no. So that aspiring writer should start writing short stories. I always tell young writers to start with short stories, but he should create his own worlds, his own characters, start from scratch, write the stories, send it out to the market, write another story, send it out to the market, collect those first rejection slips. They're always hard when you get rejected, but you have to learn to take rejection because you're going to get plenty of it as a writer and keep going. What one piece of advice would you give to a 16-year-old version of yourself? Um, <laughs> probably the same advice I just gave to, uh, to the contemporary 16-year-old. You know, you know keep, keep writing. It'll, it'll pay off in the end. Um, slightly, slightly personal question. I'm a big fan of the Wildcards character, Fortunato, for obvious reasons. Um, where does he come from? And why do you have, because you also have Whitefinger, who also, you know, curates ladies, where did those characters come from? Well, first of all, Fortunato was not my character. So card was a 
40 different writers involved. Fortunato was created by uh, Louis Shiner, a very talented uh, writer of uh, science fiction, fantasy, crime novels, uh, literary, mainstream literary novels. Um, so uh, Lou, I don't know where he came from. Lou invented him, and, but I loved the concept. And uh, in the early days of Wild Cards, in the uh, 80s, uh, Fortunato was probably the most popular character in the series. Uh, but Lou told his story and then retired him by the early 90s, so he really hasn't been around for the last 20 years of Wild Cards. Um, as for Littlefinger, well, I don't know. I don't think he's really related, except perhaps the profession that he's in. Littlefinger is more interested in money than anything else, and the power that money conveys. And as he says in, in one of the... Uh, in one of the books, and I believe this, they use this line in the TV series too, brothels are a better investment than ships, They, because whores really sink, and when they get boarded by pirates, the pirates pay the same as anyone else. If you were stuck on a desert island and had one book for company, what would it be? Uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, and just some very silly questions to finish off, if you don't mind. Um, firstly, Simpsons or Futurama? <laughs> um... That's a hard one. Um, probably The Simpsons. Dragons or starships? Starships. Finally, truth or beauty? Beauty. George Orwell Martin, thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. This is Fab Radio International. Oh my goodness, he said beauty. He said beauty, the world is about to come to an end. Um, we should have known. Experienced listeners, uh, people who listen to the show, we always ask that question at the end. Um, we always get truth. We always get truth, unless we're an actor or an artist, and sometimes we get beauty. But as a general rule, we get truth. George R. Martin said beauty. Bless his heart. See, that, that that's just, just literally bringing all sorts of thoughts in my mind, like really going into the psychology of that answer. Like, he said, Be- why did he say beauty? So is he lying to us? There's a lot of lies in, in like Game of Thrones. Oh, my God, he's a liar. He's telling us lies. There are no dragons. Oh, my God, he prefers starships. Of course he's a liar. I mean, I mean he's a writer. <laughs> he's that's a what writer. they do for a living. Uh, <laughs> talking about lies and secrets, there's a bit we should talk about. Shall we get to that in a moment? We should do indeed. So, you are listening to The Bookworm on Fab Radio International. I'm Nympha Hayes. I'm here with the lovely Ed Fortune. Hello. And um, very special um, and strange um, programme today. So, we've, we've talked about uh, the um, wonderful Graham Joyce, who unfortunately passed away, um, some kind of fairy tale, so very firmly into this fantasy world. We've had uh, an interview with, with the amazing George R. R. Martin, again, very firmly in the fantasy zone. Um, but he did mention that he liked comics and graphic novels. So I've moved away from fantasy in general to a very specific type of fant- fantasy, which is the superheroes fantasy uh, world. Um, so today I'm going to be reviewing Rising Stars, uh, which is a graphic novel by um, by J. Michael Straczynski. Um, if you're familiar with Straczynski's work, uh, that's um, the, the the same guy that basically created created Babylon Five. 
um, very successful TV program, uh, five series, uh, endless movies and books that have been created after that. Um, so, Rising Stars, um, what's it about? What is it about? Tell what me is it about? I just said, superheroes. Um, so, the story revolves um, around 113 kids that, um, whilst they were in utero, uh, this this light explosion you're not quite sure whether it's a supernova uh, or something else that happens but this mega energy blast um, happens and these 113 kids uh, that are basically being conceived in, in somehow gain superpowers um, so the story revolves around their lives and in particular certain events that bring about uh, a massive change in the world uh, so these kids um, are very very early in their life sort of pinpointed um, they get put into a specials camp uh, where they're kept together and sort of um, cared for <clears throat> and and uh, experimented upon in many ways not not directly in terms of, of doing things to that but mostly through you know monitoring what what they can do and how they can do it and uh, a, a doctor that gets put in charge of this um program is sort of tasked with finding out exactly how he can get rid of them should the need arise because obviously you know superpowers there's only these 113 kids the government has got an eye on them um and and wants to make sure that they're not going to turn up and and become psychopaths which you know it totally happens for some of them uh because it's bound to happen when you're so powerful uh but it's um it's basically just a story of of a bunch of human beings that just happen to to get these powers thrust upon them and and grow up in a world that knows they're different and makes sure that they remember that they're different um i actually went into this book um only like this week but it's been out for quite a while and it's um it's been collected in four volumes it's a full arc story so you got the beginning uh you got you know the, the origin story of how these kids get their powers and then obviously there'll be its natural end of of the story and and the story sort of mainly kickstarts it gives you obviously really sort of rich background and mega world building and then it kickstarts when some of these kids have grown up and they start dying and they're not just dying they get killed i, I rem seem to remember particularly there's one kid who is immune to damage yes basically the the, the reason why this is also incredible is the some of these kids can be hurt um but there is a list out there compiled by this doctor and obviously the kids that grew up together will know everything about each other because that's what they did they basically um try to to sort of have competitions between them to see who could fly the fastest and the highest who could resist the most um who could move the most things with their minds who could influence each other so all these powers um some kids have got the same same structure of power so there's a bunch of kids that can fly and obviously in camp they hang out and in school they hang out together because you know they they form little cliques like you do in every school they're the super jocks uh, 
absolutely um so you've got you know jason who's who's the mega super jock he's the best of the jocks and you've got john who's the 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 guy that sort of like keeps to himself and he's got a really heavy burden put upon him straight away because he's sort of like pinpointed as the most powerful even though none of the other kids know how far his powers can go because that's the way the doctor who takes care of them even though he's at the same time compiling information about them um he's basically tasked john with with the 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 job of protecting and at the same time if things get out of hand he's the one that needs to go and police it I seem to recall with the series, especially early in the series, it's how freaky their lives are once they've become grown-ups. So the guy who's completely invulnerable, yeah, he, um, he, 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 he's, he's really fat because he can't touch someone. Yes, so basically every power has got sort of like a, a, a double-sided edge to it. So yes, you are invincible. Unfortunately, what it means is that you can't feel anything. So this guy, uh, he can't be touched and when he's touched, he doesn't feel it. Because he's so protective and, and so so immune to everything. Uh, so the only thing that he actually feels is, is the taste of food. And that's his only comfort in life. So obviously that's all he does. And because he doesn't really have any active powers that are going to, you know, give him an in into the world and make him, you know, rich and famous like some others do. He's just a guy that can't be killed. But there isn't any benefit in that. Um, so he, he sits in his chair and does his, this menial job where he's a nobody in the world, knowing that nothing can kill him apart from one thing. You know, if you stop breathing, then that's it. But that's only something that either one of his friends or uh, someone that had access to the list the doctor was compiling would know. Hence why, straight away, they think it's one of us going around killing the others. Do we think this is an obsession that JMS has when it comes to superpowers? Because in the, the past, we've got we've got Babylon 5 and we've got the whole thing with the telepaths mm. and the telepath wars. He's done Protectors Inc. recently, which is again the same sort of story about people with superpowers. So that's people who've bought their way into superpowers rather than you know, mm-hmm. just acquired them. Um, he 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 did stuff for Marvel. Um, yes. Do you think Do you think he's just obsessed? See, I was thinking about this last night as I was sort of halfway through Volume Two, and and what you do realize is, well, this is just my view. As I was reading, is yes, he's using superpowers as as a, a scapegoat in a way. But really, what he's doing is looking at society uh, and how we like to put big nice labels on everything and everyone and anyone that doesn't fit into that label and little box becomes somehow dangerous so yes it, there are obviously superpowers are a really cool way of doing it without just you know going into a, a, an analysis of, of society as is um but the truth is, you know, there's, there's kids here that have been abused in many ways, mentally and physically. There's the kids that were the outsiders. There's the fat kid that was laughed at and decides one day to just fly away and keep flying until he's out there because he can't take it anymore and then just restarts his life afresh as a as a normal person. And, and you know, who, who can relate to that? So, yes, superpowers perhaps, but I think even in Babylon 5 and everything, that there are elements that just make you think, OK, you're using this but really what you're trying to do is is make a commentary on everyday life i think also it's one of the rare comic books that is a 
superhero comic books that is about superheroes. Uh, Captain America is a spy fellow who just happens to have superpowers. Well, mm-hmm. be the perfect man is kind yeah. of a superpower. Um, a lot of the Superman stories have other meanings, other stories. They're about myth, they're about mm-hmm. responsibility. Very rarely do we get an examination of what it is to have superpowers. And I think everyone goes, oh, well, The Watchman. The Watchman is not an examination of what it is to have superpowers. The yeah. the, the superpower thing is to one side. It's, it's you know, we, we could do an entire show on The Watchman, but, you know, it's not about being a superhero. Uh, See, whereas Rising Stars yes. is. It's, it's literally what it is about being a person that just happened to be able to do things that others can't do. But I, I was you, reading it. I'll tell you what is similar to that. Wild Cards, created <laughs> by George Orwell Martin. <laughs> it's like we have a theme. Yeah, but I, I would say, um, again, this is just me, uh, it's a fantastic story. Great world, great characters, really, really interesting um, ideas, um, very well written, beautiful um, graphics to it. If you like the X-Men and you like heroes in particular, I would think, I think that's probably as close as you're going to get for comparison. In particular, I think heroes, because it's the same thing. You know, these guys just happen to be born with particular abilities, and when they come together, things happen. And that's pretty much sort of like the basis for Rising Stars. Absolutely pick it up. It's a fantastic story. Uh, It's in graphic novel format by J. Michael Straczynski, and it's published by Top Cow. Um, so coming up next we're going to talk excitedly about books I think we're going to have a chat about fan fiction across the world 24 hours a day Just before we start talking about all things fan fiction, and I think we should because of the topics that um, George O. Martin picked up on, uh, let's do a quick what we're reading thing first because sometimes we miss that. Uh, It's been a bumper crop recently. So the things I'm really, really excited about... um, I'm excited. Uh, Sarah Cockle has a new Black Library book out. You can get that via the Black Library website. It's only available on ebook, which I think is a crying shame. It's called Portents, uh, and you should totally pick that up. But for some bizarre reason, it's only an ebook. Um, Katie Davies has yes. uh, a book called Breed, which is out on uh, Fox Spirit. That sounds fantastic. She is an upcoming fantasy author. Um, just just go to Fox Spirit Books, check it out, see if it's your sort of thing, and if if it is, download it or order the uh, physical book version. Um, mm-hmm. What's got you excited at the moment? Uh, loads of things actually. Um, I've, I'm re- rereading Primal Storm by by R.A. Smith because it's it's a really really great book, um, and and I really need to get together a little review for it. So maybe in the next few shows I'll I'll talk about that a bit more because I I did do Oblivion Storm, which I absolutely adore. Um, he so was really impressive at Worldcon actually. He was yeah, very impressive. Yeah. Cut, cut a nice swath through <laughs> through the crowds. 
Um, again, another another hopefully upcoming yes. uh, author who's um, currently doing the small press. Absolutely. Um, I've um, I've looked at. I'm I'm, act- I'm actually looking um, uh, through um, an arc copy of Umbrella uh, by um, Joey K. Phillips. Uh, which is hopefully coming out at the end of the year, and that's going to be really cool. Dystopian, um, sort of urban fantasy. Um, very, very interesting. So I'm looking forward to seeing that actually natural and physical copy. I'm, um, I'm reading at the moment uh, Welcome to Scarfolk, uh, which is on Ebru Press. That's a lot of fun. I'm also reading Station Eleven, which is on Random Penguin. Um, random, penguin. <laughs> random Penguin. And that is also a lot of fun. Um, I need to do a review of Cameron Hurley's Mirror Empire. I've promised this for a few weeks now. I've really enjoyed it. It's definitely worth your time. Oh, uh, and I'm reading a book. I'm reading 221 Baker Street, which is an anthology of Holmesian tales across time and space, edited by David Thomas Moore. Contains uh, little stories by Adrian Tchaikovsky, Emma Newman, um, amongst many others. All oh, that the, sounds very cool. All the delicious people that we love. This mm. morning we got sent The She-Wolf and The Lily and the Lion by uh, Maurice Duron. Now, it's got... At the top, the original Game of Thrones, which we are extremely sceptical of on this show, because mm-hmm. every time someone goes, it's either going to be Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones these days. Um, so or the Hobbit. The Hobbit's a bit more, more, more. Uh, mm. The Hobbit's a bit more up to date, isn't it? Yeah, it always makes me cringe a little bit, but you know, they actually look really good. Um, so. I'm sure they'll be fantastic. Um, but yeah, so uh, apart from that, I'm continuing with the um, finishing volume two of Rising Stars uh, by, by Straczynski. Um, and um, what else am I reading? Oh, yeah, and I've got review copies of Elizabeth Morgan's um, She-Wolf and Cranberry Blood, um, which is sort of like uh, paranormal, romance, uh, urban fantasy, vampires. Did you, get a fan- did you get a chance to finish Shadowboxer? I haven't yet, no, but I, I will soon. Because <laughs> that looks really, really good as yeah. well. There's, there's just so much out there right now. So anyway, so when we talk about, we've just won you a whole load of book names and uh, you should rewind the show and write some them down. And check them out. <laughs> or, or, you know, we'll put them on the old social media. We'll mm. put them on the old social media. We'll talk, talk about them. We'll also talk about them in the show in the future, probably. So um, those are the books that are available in the mainstream, but let's talk about the not-so-mainstream. Let's talk about the wonderful, wacky world of fan fiction, which George doesn't seem to be a fan of. Mm. Um, I'd like to point out this book I'm reading, which is a genuine bona fide book, The 221 Baker Streets, could probably be considered as fanfic. It's existing characters, not in their existing world, but it's all been collected because if you like... Sherlock Holmes in Victorian Britain, or if you like Elementary, which is Sherlock Holmes in New York, or if you like Sherlock, which is Sherlock Holmes in 21st century London, you will like this. 221 Baker Streets, of course, being an anthology of Sherlock Holmes in space! Mm. And alternate yeah, it's, not, it's not all space. The first one's um, a carnival, which is quite interesting. Carnival Holmes, that sounds... Mm. But I think one of the things with um, George Orwell Martin's generation, and you've got to remember that he was young enough to be in the letters column of Fantastic Four, like <laughs> issue five or something. Um, and, and you know, that's that's just... That's pretty impressive. That's kind of impressive. Uh, Paul Gambaccini is also in that same letters column, and you're just like, my word, you know, what a, what a selection of voices. So if, if they started out and it was good enough for them and they started out, why should we now not be doing it according to George? Because he's talking about specifically franchise fiction. 
and this is an interesting point because he's saying you shouldn't play in someone else's sandpit whereas franchise fiction is all about is a commercial tactic into writing where you you paddle away into into other people's sandpits you can get paid you know if you work for say black library or or tor or any of the other you know there's there's a whole pile of people who do star wars fiction warhammer fiction and these are official books D fiction these are official books in these worlds that's t- that is that's not fan fiction that's official tie-in fiction You're but, but where does the line where does the line get crossed? Because that's a massive blur, isn't it? Well, because there are some, you know, I imagine, I don't know because it's not my thing, but I imagine if I went on to fanfiction.net or an archive of our own, which I will continue to refer to as AO3 during this conversation, if you went on there, I'm sure you would find Star Wars fanfic, and it, some of it might be very good, some of it might be as good as the spin-off books. I don't know because it's not my thing, but I imagine it's out there. I, I think... Uh, this is just what I've understood from the conversation, obviously. Uh, I think what he's saying is it's okay as long as due is paid to the person that created that mm. world. Mm. So if you are, you know, doing it through, say, Thor, t- Thor? Whoa! Yeah. Tor, um, or Black Library, and so that some of that percentage goes to people that obviously that have invested in that world and have bought the right to play in that you know, sandpit. If you haven't and you're trying to make money out of it, you're basically taken away from someone else. You're, you're, up, you know, bridge mm. of copyright and, and comes I am sorry, mind. I've gone on a total tangent in my head and now I'm thinking of four books <laughs> by Asgard Press. And, <laughs> and essentially, you go to Asgard and this is a huge press and they produce. I'm, I'm, yeah. wa- I'm watching the last series of yeah. The Almighty Johnson, so that's what Oh dear, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but the thing about fanfic is, a lot, I think probably the vast majority of people aren't seeking to get paid. I think the problem that becomes of, oh, everybody's trying to do it for profit comes, unfortunately, from mm. Fifty Shades of Grey. I was just going to say, it's because lately it's, it seems to have become uh, okay to do it. Mm. Uh, then then I think that's why the big shining light is on it at the moment, because it's, it's now apparently okay to make money by plagiarising other things. Yeah, but, yeah. And I, but again... If you are an experienced and seen as your know, senior voice in the writing community, such as if you're someone like George R. R. Martin, do you really want to encourage people to to go into that side? Would you rather? Would you not consider it kinder to turn around to people and say, "No, seriously, build your own worlds, get your own stuff, then you can sell"? Because this is the, this this is the path that he took, and this is the old school path. Because obviously he's old school. Uh, the old school tap path. He created his own worlds. He then sold his own worlds, and he was able to do that. And what he's yeah. saying is, he's saying if you're doing that, you're not going to get to be able. You can't sell. You can't sell these things. You don't get the same level of exercise. As he says, you're only exercising one side of you. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that that's true. And also, I think it is a place to start. Um, I think you start out, you know, if, if you're a writer, if you're a teenager, if you're not entirely sure how you go about it in there, you know, if you want to come up with something entirely new, you've got to create the world, create the scenario, and create the characters. And if you do it with fanfic, all you've got to create is the scenario, because the people reading it, who will be, you know, familiar with the world, know who the characters are, know who the world are. And so they can say, yeah, that's good, or yeah, that's a little bit off character, out of character, or no, that was good, that was very true to them. And you can develop it from there. And my experience as somebody who reads a fair amount of fanfic for very specific fandoms is that you will start off writing stuff and you will use just the characters who you've seen, or, you know, you've seen on the TV show or seen the film or read in the book already. And then you'll move on and you'll develop it. 
and you'll get to the point where you've got some new characters in and then you will very often see that people who've been writing that are now writing entirely their own short stories and stuff in their entirely own new worlds and it's used as a stepping stone to build up I think your confidence and your experience of how you write because all this uh, advice of oh just sit down and write just sit down and write you've kind of got to start somewhere and I think the fanfic allows you to take those little baby steps that get you into the discipline of writing the hunting knowing what works and what doesn't work knowing how to maintain a character's voice Doctor Who is a fantastic example of that Uh, I was having an argument with Alan Stroud about this because um, Alan Stroud's very much, you must stick to the canon, and I'm like, that's complete nonsense, and there's no such thing as Doctor Who canon. But the thing with Doctor Who is you look at so many Doctor Who writers, and because they've been freed from this whole concept of IP, um, they start off writing about their favourite Doctor, then they start off writing about their favourite companion, and then you get people like Paul McGears, who writes Irish Wild Time Adventures, and it's like, Irish Wild Time is not a Doctor Who character, as most people would recognise her. Um, to those who have read read those books and read those stories, they're like, we want her in the show. She's she's made Absalom Dak, who is a, a fan character, is a comic book character, pretty much a fan character, gets a very sneaky reference in next week's Doctor Who show. And you know, this this is a world that's built on itself, that's built on itself through the input of the fans. So, I think I think what we need to remember, and you know, is is. Everyone's got a different approach to writing. You can't, there's no such thing as writing canon. You can't say you've got to do it this way because every single writer I've ever spoken to or read interviews or listened to interviews will tell you that they have a very unique way of sitting down and approaching how they're going to be writing. And I think producer Al has got a really good point where it says some of us, not me, but some people need the comfort of knowing they're moving in an established world before they can make up their own. And that's just as valid as doing it any other way. There is no one true way. There is no one true path. Um, Get on, sit down and write and just write. And if you think you're just exercising one side of yourself, eventually you'll notice, I think, eventually you notice that you lack somewhere and you practice. A a very dear friend of mine who's a very good journalist, um, and she didn't really get into the, the fiction writing, and she just went, oh, I can't really build worlds. And I'm like, well, that's because you've never tried. Maybe you should try. Um, <laughs> world building is, is is a skill as much as it is character building. Are we are we massively running down out time? We're two and a half minutes over. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's okay. That's okay. We don't want to leave you people, but what we we I think we gotta run now. Uh, I think shall we shall we flee? Embrace the alternative. This, this is Fab Radio International. Darbus Magazine is out, issue 4 or 5, you should buy that. Also, uh, if you liked our show, if you liked our little show, tell your friends, tell everyone, uh, link to link to uh, social media, we are out there, tell the world please. <laughs> also, if you're on iTunes... Can you just leave a comment there? Because at the moment it's just saying, oh, not enough comments for us to... It's just, just stick it's a thing sad. in. It's sad. It makes us sad. It looks lonely. Subscribe, <laughs> leave us comments, Facebook us, Twitter us, tumble us. Love us. Love us. Love hate us. us. It's fine. Send every piece of hate mail for <laughs> anything that we've said. Make sure you address it to Ed Fortune at Starburst Magazine. At Ed underscore Fortune on Twitter or 
ed.fortune@starburstmagazine.com. <laughs> send us, send me your hate, send me your love, send me your bank details. Uh, <laughs> anything you no want. No Nigerian prince. No. <laughs> so this is goodbye from uh, the bookworm. Um, Nympha Hayes. Bye bye. I'm Ed Fortune. Goodbye. The Bookworm is a truly outrageous production for Fab Radio International and Starburst Magazine. Presented by Ed Fortune and Nympha Hayes. Produced by A.L. Johnson.